Welcome to There is a Season, the Bob and Gloria Show. This is the show about how we change, how we age, and how we care for one another. I'm Bob Wolf, And I'm Gloria Shanahan. Thanks for joining us. And as always, if you'd like to add your insights to our topic today, we'd love to hear from you. 457-1290 is the number to reach us. That's 937-457-1290. And feel free to write to us anytime at Bob and Gloria at thereisaseasonshow.com. Yes, indeed. You seem higher today. You seem I have a new chair. lifted almost. Well, that's true. I'm, I have you, a new chair. I'm taller than you wow. now over here right, at mine. Right before my eyes, you are my ascending. <laughs> you're, you're, I like being you're up emergence, here. Your ascendancy. <laughs> hey, so in all the years we've done this show, you know, we've tried to cover the range of experience that most of our listeners will face in the course of their lifetimes. There's a lot of different things we go through particularly in the latter half of our lives. And we've talked about them on this program. And we've also talked about some of the specifics that all of us will face eventually. Namely, you know, one of them is our departure from this existence. That conversation has included topics about health care, about transition, about creating your legacy file or folder, and most importantly, about caregiving. We've talked a lot about palliative care and hospice in the past about estate planning, and about planning for a funeral, cremation, and options for a memorial service. A lot of the stuff you're not going to hear in any other program on the radio. We've dealt with it here, and and we were happy to do it, and uh, we appreciate the fact that you listened to it, and I think a lot of people who who heard our programs appreciated it. Uh, We think all of that information is important, of course, but today's topic is even more essential, more personal, more intimate, more crucial, I think, to our understanding, attitude, and preparation for our own death or that of a loved one. Much of what may have been understood as natural and inevitable about life, most especially that, at least biologically, we are living one day but we'll be gone the next, has migrated more and more toward what bioethicists and others now call medicalization. Big word, medicalization. How is that defined, Gloria? There are slight variations in the terminology when people talk about medicalization, but what it boils down to is this. We've drifted into a culture in which regular human conditions and problems have come to be defined and treated as medical conditions. In, an, in another future show that we're working on, we'll talk more about how this process, this tendency of defining normal human conditions as medical conditions is a byproduct of advances in technology and pharmacology, as well as a broad expectation in society that we can and should do anything and everything to extend human lives indefinitely. Now think about it. There's a lot packed into this idea, including a certain hubris about our technological capabilities. And if you hadn't already suspected, significant financial incentive on the parts of those who would keep life going indefinitely. Let's pull back from that just for a moment. In ages past, way, way back, decades, centuries before we had big pharma and before a quarter or more of our economy was tied to healthcare, a human life was subject to many, many things. 
heredity, childbirth, infection, disease, including a great many diseases born from poor sanitation, also from war, from general violence that was unchecked, from eras in which individual life had little protection in law. If you go back and study any history, you'll find things were pretty severe. People also were subject to the dangers of nature, whether that meant hazards while hunting to secure food, or floods, or famine, or storms, or what have you. The fact is, people died. A lot of people died young. And with rare exception, most people died significantly younger than people do in the industrialized world today. Of course, in some places in the world, life expectancy is still under 40 years. A lot of parts of Africa uh, suffer Mm. from that. But it was a natural thing Mm. that you were not necessarily going to just live on into your 70s or 80s. That was a rare thing. Right. And now it's not like people sat around thinking much about life expectancy. No. You know, people hope not to get sick or killed by some accident, of course. But as you said, they went on about their lives in eras which were not as safe and in which there were few solutions and in particular medical solutions, right? Leeches were good. (laughs) Just put that on (laughs) you. Nevertheless, countless people had their faith. And in times of sickness and death, especially, it was common to pray to secure the presence of a priest or other religious member to receive the sacraments if possible and to focus on trying to get through the inevitable. The dying person needed support beyond medicine and there wasn't much and others needed consolation. Now, as I said, in the 14th and the 15th century, now we're going back five, 600 years, life was hard. It was very hard. There had been many wars and much violence throughout Europe. And this is going to sound familiar, a pandemic of staggering proportion, believed to have started in China, go figure, (laughs) and spread through trade routes to Europe. It spread like crazy. It was called the Black Death, bubonic plague. It was estimated to kill a minimum of 25 million people. Some estimates are much, much higher than that. And by some accounts at its peak, it was taking every third life in Europe. Now compare that to COVID. It's night and day, okay? COVID was bad. But just picture this. Every third life, what it would have done to a family. The Black Death lingered on for centuries, but at that time, no family was left untouched. Also not spared were many of the clergy, the very people families sought out for comfort and the ability for loved ones to make a holy sacramental passage into the next life. Nobody knows the origins for sure. But during this period in the early 1400s, historians believe that an anonymous Dominican friar, in an attempt to help priests help families deal with dying and loss, and in an attempt to help the dying themselves prepare for their own death and their future, wrote a text, a kind of how-to manual of sorts about dying, death, and preparation for the soul. And think about this for a moment. We already talked about how medicine was nowhere near as advanced as it was today. And if you've ever seen any kind of dramatization of somebody dying uh, toward the end, whether the medicine man or the 
whatever you wanted to call them, whether they came in and they had oils or they had uh, leeches or, or some oh, other medical thing, leeches. it was we'd look at it and go, oh my gosh, that was <laughs> how, how incredibly, you know, not advanced all of that was. But the role, a lot of times, of a religious person in those situations still was a big part of the culture. I don't know how that compares to today. I know we have in churches, we have chaplains, or in, excuse hospitals. me, in hospitals, we have mm-hmm. chaplains. I know people pray, uh, but there was a big concern back then, and particularly in this context when so many people were dying, I think people were reaching out for something. There was a, there was a panic in the heart about, could I be next? What's happening to my loved one? It seems like you know the world's coming to an end, and what do people tend to do when they're desperate? They want to reach for a higher power. Mm. So this manual that came about was kind of this this how-to um, appeared on the scene. Uh, and it was called Ars Moriendi, or The Art of Dying. And it refers to two related Latin texts from about 1415 and 1450, which offer protocols or practices for what was thought of as having a good death, a how-to die well. It's interesting that we've done shows on a life well lived before, right? I think that's the, the key to a, a good death, is yeah, how you've the, lived your life. And that's mentioned, and that is mentioned, and we'll get to that in a second. But <laughs> countless Christians and others would cite the Bible, of course, as the text for guidance on living a life well. Mm-hmm. But um, here in the early 15th century, at a time of fear and unease, and families being devastated, and watching their spiritual leaders devastated, well, they were hungry for some other how-to, for comfort about some way to make death meaningful. Not just so that it was understood by the surviving people. It wasn't just a means of what do we do to comfort the families that are watching a mother or a father or someone else die, but that the death itself could have been made better or perfected for the dying person. The art of dying fit in with the other art of or craft of texts that were becoming more common then and certainly after Gutenberg created his printing press in the mid-15th century, much more common in Europe. Authors were seeking to capture for their contemporaries and future generations how things were done the best of culture, technology, warfare, and so forth. So why not the art of dying? Why not indeed? In our modern times, we've had any number of self-help books. We've even had the whole series of, what is it, the yellow book, the dummies, you know, such and such for dummies, whether it's computers for dummies or this for dummies, um, where people have kind of looked for some means of saying, well, I don't know anything about this. What do I do? So back then, here was this opportunity. And keeping in mind that, uh, you didn't have a widely you know, literate population. Most of this stuff was still written for priests and leaders of communities to then pass on right. in some way. But they wanted this kind of how-to. Well, for anybody out there listening right now, you know we're talking about the art of dying. And that, that leads me to remember something that someone said to me once. And she said, you know, we don't die, Gloria. We don't die. So I'd like to call it the art of passing on. Right. Into another life. Right. You know, I usually say someone passed on today or, you know, we don't really yeah. die. And and nowadays in the 
era of medicalization where almost everything is put through the lens of what do we do next? Or let's talk about pain management or let's talk about this, 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 this. You wonder about the spiritual or the afterlife. How much focus is on that? How much do people come to terms with their own death and say, this is the natural, maybe I didn't time it, but this is the natural flow of my life. And now I must be prepared for the even bigger journey I'm about to do. Right. So there is insight and inspiration about the art of dying that we can draw on all these centuries later. And we're going to share that with you when we come back. Ars Moriendi, the art of dying when we return. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to There is a Season, and we'll be right back. It's an Ask the Expert weekend on Dayton and Springfield's 24-hour news, weather, and traffic station, 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. It's our Ask the Expert weekend on the Miami Valley Radio Station with breaking news, weather, and traffic. 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. Welcome back to There is a Season. I'm Bob. And I'm Gloria. We are, we are talking today about ours. Moriendi. We are. You say it. I like to hear you say it. I know. That's I was getting Go ready ahead. to, and you're probably afraid. <laughs> We're talking about Ayers Moriendi. Ars Moriendi. Okay. Which I grew is, up in corn country, Which Bob. means what? The art of dying. The art of dying. Or it's the a, art of passing on. It's a, it's a fairly <laughs> uh, broad topic, especially in Christian literature, believe it or not, if you haven't heard about it from before today. <laughs> but one of the earliest manuals on this art goes back to a pair of texts, one pretty short and then one much longer produced anonymously by a Dominican friar in the mid-15th century. I hope you're taking notes, right? We've got to make sure people take notes on this like a class. We believe these things offer us a tremendous countercultural insight and inspiration today about the whole process of dying and how it is a part of life. Yes, there's a lot you can research about the text itself, including that it spawned um, what's called block books, which were elaborate wood carvings that depicted the scene of a dying person surrounded by all sorts of characters, families, um, sorrowful and trying to console, angels and demons fighting for the soul of the dying person and more. Incredible works of art also then used as um, blocks for printing. We've seen some of these pictures yeah. of these blocks. They're, they are incredible. If you mm. if you do any research on Ars Moriendi, you'll see what we're talking about. Incredibly complex uh, yeah. carvings. Let's delve a little bit into the Ars Moriendi. Um, it, it was written in Latin originally, right? Right. And um, Ars Moriendi would have primarily been read by priests and scholars, some of the very few people who, who would have known how to read and write. Um, priests would then be able to pass this knowledge on to Christians who were dying and their families to ensure that they were prepared for divine judgment in the afterlife. Ars Moriendi was split into six I'm chapters. Gonna, I'm going to get you to say ours. Ars Moriendi. What do I say? The first four were focused on the spiritual needs of the dying. The text reminded them to have faith in Christ's love and steered them away from temptation, preparing them to go to heaven after death. The last two chapters were for family and friends, instructing them how to behave at their loved one's bedside and suggesting ways to pray for their immortal soul. So, now, people hearing this might be going, what are, what are you talking about, how, instructing on how to behave? 
Well, there's a lot of things even nested within that phrase. You could have had people who were utterly distraught to the point of being misery and you know miserable and wailing. That was no comfort to the person dying. Right? Uh, no. Uh, you could have been people <laughs> had people who were you know being all Pollyanna about it. You know, you'll pull through this. There's no problem. You know, which is I sometimes think what happens today when there's always another medical thing you can try. Right. So there were instructions for the people around. But the bulk of the R's, Moriandi, was about the person, him or herself, what they were about to go through. And there was a great deal of concern in those days about their soul. Mm. Yeah. Were you going to make it or were you not going to make it when you died? So it starts with this first chapter, right, which says uh, it praises the deaths of good Christians and repentant sinners who die gladly and willfully, because the best preparation for a good death is a good life, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. A lot of this in the Bible, of yes. course. Christians should live, quote, in such a wise manner that they may die safely every hour, any hour, when God, when God would will that, right? Mm-hmm. That's part of what's captured in this first chapter. Now, it's going to go on and... and as we come back from the news later, we're going to talk about the, the second part, but give us a brief intro to what the second chapter deals with. Yeah, the, the second chapter presents five temptations and their corresponding inspirations, right? Um, so somebody dying, you know, would be counseled in this regard about what they're going to be tempted by. Yeah, and they're, they're considered these common challenges in their final days. So... When so we when we we'll have more back. on the yeah. other side of the news. So how was the R.S. Moriandi designed to help the dying? How was it designed to help those grieving and trying to support that dying person? We'll tell you more about all of that, about this medieval text, and how it informs and impacts our understanding of dying today. Can we look beyond medicalization? Can we accept that our mortal lives actually end, that is, our mortal bodies end, and that we have an extraordinary opportunity to prepare for what's next. More on the art of dying when we return. You are listening to There is a Season. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's an Ask the Expert weekend on Dayton and Springfield's 24-hour news, weather, and traffic station, 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. Welcome back to There is a Season, the show about how we change, how we age, and how we care for one another. I'm Bob Wolf, And I'm Gloria Shanahan. We're talking today about Ars Moriendi, or the French version, according to Gloria, <laughs> Ars Moriendi. It's Ars Moriendi, the art of dying. And uh, let's let's just recap briefly how it got here in the, in the structure here. There were two versions written, um, they believe authored by a Dominican friar. In the first was around 1415, which was a, uh, a longer version. And then once it became more popular and it started to spread through Europe, there was a shorter uh, version of this uh, accelerated in terms of readership by the uh, advent of Gutenberg's press. He had done that Bible thing. And so we followed <laughs> up with the Ars Moriendi, although some people called it the Ars Moriendi. So uh, <clears throat> anyway, talk about the book itself. Go ahead. Well, there's six chapters overall with the first chapter, praising the deaths of good Christians and repentant sinners who die gladly and willfully. It goes on to say that because the best preparation for a good death is a good life, 
Christians should live in such wise manner that they may die safely every hour, any hour, for whenever God wills it. So so and we mentioned that in the first part of the show. So the mm-hmm. whole idea of the first chapter in the Ars Moriandi is to say to folks, live well, die well. Okay, that's the basic framework of this. And there's nothing really revolutionary because people have been told that for centuries through the Bible that you ought to live a good life. Where it gets really interesting is the the nuts and bolts of this guidance. Remember, this is primarily a document read by priests who were literate, unlike most of the population, reemphasizing the Christian message of salvation, that it mattered what your disposition was as you died. That death here, however, did not mean the end. Now, and that cut both ways. One could find salvation or damnation after earthly life. The purpose of the Ars Moriendi... You did it. I did. ...was preparation for salvation. And as the wood carving art blocks depicted, there were many demons trying to keep that from happening. That's where we get into chapter 2, which talks about the five temptations for the dying person and their remedies, per se. And what were they, Bob? Now think about this here. Someone's dying in a bed and... There's all the usual uh, sadness going on and the drama of all of that. Maybe there's been some medical intervention or an attempt. People are trying to pray. This is a manual to guide people's thoughts, not only the people around who are suffering from sadness, but the person, him or herself, who is dying. And the second chapter here gets into the nitty-gritty of what were the things that endangered the person's soul in this passage. And the first was the temptation against faith, that the dying person would be tempted to renounce their Christian faith, but instead the Ars Moriendi counsels people who are counseling the dying to reaffirm their belief in God, and they would repeatedly do this with somebody. You're scared, you're about to renounce your faith because you're, you're afraid, keep believing in God and in salvation. Right. What's another one? The second temptation is the temptation to despair. Um, you may become, or they may become hopeless in the face of death, but instead, the Ellers Marindi um, helps you to find renewed hope in God's forgiveness. The third temptation mentioned in the second chapter is the temptation to impatience. People who have cared for anybody with a chronic, uh, painful decline would know something about this. But the call here is for the person who's suffering to still find a way to practice charity and patience, Christian virtues. So we've had the temptation against giving up your faith, the temptation to despair, and the temptation to be impatient. What's another one? Another one is temptation to vainglory, which basically is you must reject any pride in yourself or worldly achievements and instead be humble and remembering your past sins. And this one fits in a little bit with this last one, the temptation to avarice or greed or materialism. The dying person was encouraged to detach him or herself from material possessions. And we wrote down in our notes here the the word legacy, because we mentioned that earlier, and we've done programs Mm -hmm. on this, the legacy file or folder. Even if you get away from the technical document that we've discussed in our five essential documents show, a lot of people think about, well, what's my legacy I'm going to leave behind? A lot of the financial people in the world would talk about what's going to be left behind in an inheritance and how to avoid taxes and all this other kind of stuff, right? They're encouraging the dying person to let all of that go. Let it all go. Let it, let your own legacy personally go, no matter what you did or did not do, to give that up at this important 
thing because it's mm. getting in the way of you making this passage to salvation. Right. That's the opening. So there's two very powerful chapters right off the bat. Now there's a third chapter which gets into what you know a treatise that prescribes what was called at the time interrogations, not mm. not like on a detective show or anything, but these were questions that were to lead the dying to reaffirm their faith, to repent their sins and to commit themselves fully to Christ's passion and death, to draw a parallel between those things by constantly asking the person to reaffirm their faith. So that was in the third chapter. What was after that? So the fourth chapter asked the dying to imitate Christ's actions on the cross and provides prayers for a clear end and the everlasting bliss that is the reward of holy dying. So think about it. If if we've heard the story of, of Jesus at Calvary, he's got the thieves on either side of him. He's, uh, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's thirsty. He's been tortured. He's been scourged and all this kind of thing. And they're encouraging people to think about their own suffering and their own dying in the context of Christ having gone through that and how the whole purpose of his doing that was to gain our salvation. And now you're being asked to partake in that. Now, um, the fifth chapter then starts to shift gears a little bit, right? We've had four here that talked about uh, the person, him or herself, dying. The first one, live a good life and die a good life. The second one, these temptations brought on by the devil about faith and, and despair and impatience and vainglory and attachment to things. The third one, these questions that are supposed to test someone's faith uh, and, and their commitment to repentance. The fourth one, uh, to imitate Christ dying on the cross. What does the fifth chapter get into? In the fifth chapter, the emphasis shifts to those who assist the dying, including family and friends. They are to follow the earlier prescriptions, present the dying with images of the crucifix and saints, and encourage them to repent, receive the sacraments, and draw up a testament disposing of their possessions. In the process, the attendants are to consider and prepare for their own deaths. Which was a further kind of instruction, right? So in other words, whether there was a priest there or not, if somebody was sort of you know, literate enough to read the, the uh, manual or had been through some kind of an education with the priest who presented this manual, they were, they were saying to everybody, look, here's another example. Here's somebody dying, and we're giving you some advice about a better way to spend these last moments. Mm. Instead of worrying yeah. about your own loss of this person, which is what a lot of people do, right? They, they're it's, very sad that somebody's dying and how, you know, what I'm losing, the so person much, that I'm losing. Yes, is about us and not the person who is passing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're trying to shift that a little bit to say, remember what we're talking about here, getting this person across the divide to their life of salvation. Yes. Mm-hmm. What's the sixth chapter about? So in the sixth chapter, the dying can no longer speak on their own behalf and the attendants are instructed to recite a series of prayers as they commend the spirit of our brother into God's hands. If anybody has experienced something like this, in a in a particularly in a clinical situation in a hospital, uh, I'd be amazed. You know, if anybody's experienced something like this, I'm not to say that the chaplains haven't prayed bedside, that families haven't joined in prayer, but there's a specific focus in this art of dying approach that is extremely uh, spiritual and sacramental. And as we, you know, the whole point of this show was to point out that everything's become so medical, medicalization, and we forget about this really important part. Yeah, if you and you could imagine 
people spending an extraordinary amount of time in a hospital, even when they know someone's going to die, Mm-hmm. with constant visits by the medical staff, with questions about, well, could we try this? Should we try that? What about this? Or even questions about pain management, yeah. which I'm not saying are, are important, yeah, right? but pain management for your mortal body pales in comparison to what's going to happen to your soul after you pass on, right? Mm-hmm. The R is moriendi. Now, of course, this is in Latin, and there were few people who, I mean, they may have heard it, but they may not have been able to read it. So it eventually caught the attention in the late 15th century, around 1490, of William Caxton, who was responsible for introducing the revolutionary printing press across the pond, well, not across the pond, across the channel, in his case, to England. And he was the first retailer of printed books and the first person ever to print a book in English, Caxton put his other work on hold in order to translate a French version. There you go. A French See? version of the Ars Moriendi. The Ars Moriendi. I was right all along without knowing <laughs> in, it. Into English. In June 1490, he printed it under his own title called The Art and Craft to Know Well to Die. Okay. Yeah, it's an English thing. Caxton version was likely have to, to have been one of the first copies of Ars Moriendi written in the English language. So suddenly, you know, it exploded in terms of its readership. We can't imagine having a manual like this today. Uh, no. We can on medical topics, but probably not about something like this. So that is um, the Ars Moriendi, and here we are 600 years later talking about it, and we believe it's as relevant as ever. That's really the thrust of our main point today, uh, is to get people to think of things beyond yep. the medical, right? Yep. And, and you can download um, a copy of Caxton's Ars Moriendi. Nailed it. Google Play for free. So that's Google Play. And there are some other resources that we'll tell you about in, you know, in just a little bit here. More to come, including insight and inspiration about those who have passed on. And especially for those who remain. One man's take on the gift of dying. You are listening to There is a Season. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's our Ask the Expert weekend on the Miami Valley radio station with breaking news, weather, and traffic. 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. It's an Ask the Expert weekend on Dayton and Springfield's 24-hour news, weather, and traffic station. 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. Welcome back to There is a Season. I'm Bob. And I'm Gloria. We've been talking about Ars Moriendi today, despite what Gloria says was said in France. The Art (laughs) of Dying. Uh, There are many excellent books on this topic. One is called The Christian Art of Dying, Learning from Jesus by Alan Verhey. You can find it on Amazon. Just research Ars Moriendi, that is A-R-S space M-O-R-I-E-N-D-I, Ars Moriendi, The Art of Dying, if you'd like to learn more. Now let's finish out the show today with something about those who have died, but about also those who remain. One man, Henry Cordonier, has a perspective you may not have heard before, but we think it's very worth sharing today. And it's titled, Happy to Take Care of It for Us, Dear. Usually one spouse outlives the other and the surviving spouse carries a cross of loss for a long time. The Lord has given me a way of thinking about this cross that has helped me to carry it and I want to share it with you, he says. I hope you will find it helpful. Spouses like to do acts of love for each other, which often entail making a sacrifice that can range from small to large. It always made me feel good when I was able to do something loving for my wife. 
For example, each week, Anne would make a grocery list, and I would take all of the kids, and we had seven of them, with me to the grocery store. We always went to more than one store in order to get the best deals. Now, this would give Anne about two hours alone to do whatever she wanted without interruptions. She really appreciated this small act of love, and I did this for over 25 years. I was happy to do this for her because I loved her. So many times a situation arises and both spouses look at each other to see who's going to take care of it. Eventually, one spouse will say, honey, I'll take care of it. You just relax. Well, that's how I look at my life now. Anne died first, and I get to give her one last gift. One of us had to suffer through the pain of loss and separation, and I'm glad it's me. So each day I tell her, honey, I've got this. You just enjoy yourself in heaven. It makes me feel much better about the pain that I'm going through because it's a gift to her so that she doesn't have to go through the pain. You might say that I didn't have a choice about who died first, and you would be correct. But I do have a choice in how I respond to this situation, and I've chosen to accept Anne's death as God's will for us. I've chosen to thank God for giving me this opportunity to die last and to endure all the suffering that goes with it, much of which is still in the unknown future. I'm grateful that she never had to suffer the pains of being a widow. It makes me feel good to think about it in this way. And he ends it with, I'm happy to take care of it for us, dear. It's extremely touching. Yes. Um, and and uh, it puts a whole different perspective on suffering, what suffering means, the value of suffering. And in this case here, he's obviously shown how taking the burden of that, taking the burden of caring about it, took off that that worry, you know, from... Her he, having to go through it. Right, if he had right. died first, it, so it's you, a it's a counter cultural way to think about about death. Really, yeah, and it's a gift. It is in that sense. Then his name again is Henry Cordonier. If you're a Facebook person, you can look it up. It's spelled. Uh, let's see if I get this right. C O R D O N N I E R. And uh, you know you can track him down. He's yes, written he's, some other books, yes, I, I believe, and done some seminars. But that insight from his own personal suffering in his own life is is tremendous. Mm-hmm. Hey, listen, be sure to check out uh, the station here or uh, your favorite podcast source for the show soon that we just did. Ours, Moriandi. Write to us at Bob and Gloria at There is a Season Show with your comments. That'll do it for us today. Remember, dear friends, seek grace in every step and never regret growing older. It is a privilege denied to many. We're here for each other and we're here for you. For my dear friend and co-host, Gloria Shanahan, for our producers and everyone who makes the show possible, thanks for your time, attention, and interest to what we do here on There is a Season. We'll see you again soon. Have a blessed week.